and welcome back to a special episode of Ladies First. I'm Corey. Taylor is back with me, and we have a guest with us, Eli. Hi. Hello. How are things? Long time no see. Yeah, exactly. So Eli is back with us because, as we mentioned in one of our previous episodes, we were going to start having some um, kind of interview episodes, discussion episodes, where it's a safe space to learn what you didn't know about certain identities or certain topics. And this episode, we're talking about trans mask persons and issues and general FAQ. And again, this isn't a safe space of like, if we ask, we're not asking out of malicious intent. It's because we're asking things people have asked us that they're too afraid to ask and would like to know. And Eli has graciously agreed to join us on this episode and depart his wisdom. I figured it was appropriate considering I was one of the founding members of this podcast. <laughs> also that, also just Eli and I have known each other for forever. <laughs> which I am allowed point. to say, which I am allowed to divulge, isn't it? But I, I figured that most people would figure it out because I didn't like change my last name. I just like shortened my name down to the first three letters. I'm not doing like a whole smokescreen here, but well, I it's mean, not I'll like. S- but the other reason is that is that uh, queer women, especially lesbians and trans masks, their issues are really heavily intertwined, mm-hmm. and these two communities have had a history of friction and i feel now that i have switched sides um that that was stupid we need to do away with that and things like this are a way to do away with it also like i was saying eli and i have known each other forever at this point so there's a trust between us that makes it easier to have these kinds of conversations so eli also knows i'm not asking to be a dillweed (laughs) i also agreed to this just you know (laughs) That's the other thing is like, if a trans person agrees to answer your questions, then go ahead and ask. Like, mm-hmm. we're not here to trick. It's not like a genie or a, a riddle. And I think that's, that's the you important. Know, if we say yes, we mean yes. That's the important aspect though. Is like, you have to have consent of like, yes, I'm comfortable answering these mm-hmm. questions for you. You can't just go up to any trans person and be like, hey, what's up with blah, blah. They, they haven't consented to be your, um guide to transness so to speak you can't just assume that just because you know somebody who is trans means that they're going to be okay with answering any and all questions you have we also have another person on this podcast who's been very polite and waiting to be introduced thanks i just wanted to let everyone you know say what they wanted to say because i don't like i I'm new to this kind of stuff, so, like, I'm just here to sit back and listen and maybe throw in some history that I've read because I've been reading a lot the past month and a half and prep for this kind of material. You remembered, you remembered all the important names for me, so I didn't have to remember them. See, like, I learned all of this stuff when I took women's studies classes and that sort of thing, but, you know, memory is sort of iffy considering the events of the past year, so, like, you know, I'll be like, like, oh, well, there was, like, this painter who uh, was ambiguously trans or this. And then Taylor would come back and be like, was it this person? And I'm like, yes, thank you. Taylor is amazing at research. She did most of the research for this episode, just FYI, because she doesn't credit herself as enough. Um, so if we do want to go ahead, sweet. Um, 
I am really sorry about the horn in the background. Go Los Angeles. I missed that. <laughs> I know Eli's like, oh yeah, that always happened. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Um, one of the kind of major trans mask issues that I think is not talked about nearly enough is, and, and they're two sides of the same coin. It's invisibility and erasure. I know there's been a lot of discussion about trans women, trans women, trans women, as there should be, but you, after a while, I, I feel like you tend to realize like nobody's talking about trans men. Yeah. Well, we got a little gift for that because our friend Elliot Page came out, which um, did about the same, it probably was an equivalent uh, important event to when he came out last time as a lesbian in terms of pop culture impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was pretty lucky that that happened now. I feel like this was an important time for that to happen. For And, you know, obviously it was a very brave thing for him to do, to be the f- one of the first, probably the first, I can't think of any others. Well, I mean, I um, are- Sh- Sonny... Sonny Bono came right yes yes but that was in the 90s and there hasn't really been a big figure that I can think of since then well Chaz is also you know like he's just like he's just like a normal guy you know yes he's not he's not not, like he was on Dancing with the Stars but like you know he's just kind of like a regular guy that's not like a big star or anything Elliot Mm -hmm. Page is a insanely big star has been nominated for awards has won awards um was started as an indie darling and is now like a much beloved actor so this is a little bit of a different ball game in terms of exposure especially as he has been already linked to the queer community for so long mm-hmm. well also i mean like he's not afraid to speak about it if that makes sense. I mean, from my perspective of he's, he's very open. Yeah. Uh, because he's Elliot page, uh, which is good. <laughs> like there, are, there are certain personalities. Um, who his last names are things that you put in mausoleums. Um, they seem to think that there's no use for rich celebrities coming out as trans. And I think that that's very dumb. Because I think that some of the only people who can get away with it without any, well, there's always danger, but without a normal person's level of danger are very famous people, which is, you know, like what you saw with what happened with Caitlyn Jenner. Mm -hmm. Well, and even then, like not every trans person, man or woman, feels like they can come out and be open about that for the sake of their career. I know... Uh, one of the people Taylor had researched was Catherine Hepburn. Taylor, you want to illuminate uh, us on that? I sure. saw this on the list and had not heard this before. I had heard before that she was queer, but I had not heard this, so I'm excited. Okay, so Catherine Hepburn is, among general queer culture history, is known as a bisexual woman. But um, over 10 years ago, her biographer came out and was very explicit, like, she probably would be considered, if not a trans man, transmasculine, as how he, he didn't use that exact terminology, but he definitely was, like, framing in the sense that she probably was not, 
she was very gender non-conforming to begin with. You know, she was often wearing pants and suits during, throughout her career. But he noted that in her childhood, she very much she, like, shaved her head. She like went, I think, by the name Jimmy and wanted her family and friends when she was a child to call her Jimmy. And this may have been whoa, yeah. <laughs> and this may have been something she actually continued throughout her personal life. I he like referenced it in an interview that I read. And also talked about it more in the biography he wrote that I have not read. But essentially, it's there's a very real chance Catherine Hepburn was actually a trans masculine or trans man who just never came out publicly and was just very private. And just it was just, you know, professional protection to not come out. And also because it sounds like from what the interview said that um, Hepburn was dealing with a lot of issues about their sense of masculinity and how they felt about it just on a personal level. Like the interview said that Hepburn may not actually been by that Hepburn may have been just dating queer men, you know, because that was like the, they, these men represented the mascul- masculinity Hepburn wanted to embody and that Hepburn instead had the greatest love for the women in their life again it's kind of unclear because i haven't read the biography and some of these thoughts from the biographer come from um an unpublished like autobiographical play hepburn wrote or something that her their estate has not allowed to be released so he could not the, the biographer <laughs> could not quote the like writings in the book but it's call that's always a good indicator isn't it yeah so basically hepburn was and undeniably a queer figure in early Hollywood who paved the way for a lot of people. Really yeah, quick. Where it's important. Um, because. You got a question, Corey? Yes, this was actually a question we had submitted to us and um, Taylor brought it up mentioning trans men or trans mask. Would Eli, would you like to explain the difference between trans man and trans mask? Or transmasculine? Yes. Okay. Um, the way that the terms are typically used, as you will always encounter individuals who have an individual connotation of any term, and that's just how the queer umbrella works. But trans man usually means somebody who identifies as entirely in the masculine binary. Like they're, they consider themselves a man. Someone who says, I am trans mask is basically saying, I am masculine primarily but the rest of it is sort of left to interpretation basically what when when someone uses one term or the other what they're trying to indicate to you is how binary they view their gender to be and you'll see the same thing with trans women will say i am a trans woman or they will say i am a trans femme sometimes they'll say i am a non-binary woman or trans non-binary woman or you also hear i am a trans non-binary man so there are, there's various definitions, but they are all fairly, um, I guess, not self-explanatory, but it is what it says on the tin. <laughs> like, Basically how, usually how much you conform to a gender role. Something, yeah, if somebody says something other than man or woman with a modifier, basically what they're telling you is, is these terms do not apply to me for some reason. And you may get another word that will explain to you how this relationship goes but some people will just leave it at as i'm non-binary which can mean trans or anything outside of that construct even 
And some people will just say, I don't know, which has always been my favorite answer when you ask someone what their gender is. Right. I I don't know. I just, I remember like um, dating myself a little here on MySpace for your sexuality <laughs> and gender. You could, for both options, you could pick, I don't know. And I love the energy of that. Anyway. <laughs> so that's what the difference is. Um, so what I was going to say before about Catherine Hepburn um, having historians and archivists allow themselves to look at things like this with this lens is important because one of the main problems that we encounter with documenting trans and gay and bisexual any queer people in history is more um, it's not that the evidence isn't there it's that we face a sort of um, academic writing barrier there's a there's a word for this and i don't know what the word is because it's like an sat word and it's been a long time since i've taken that complicated of an english class but um we we have a specific way at which we try to remain neutral in academia even in gender studies that i feel we have now passed a point where we can be like this obviously is not a lens that works because the only thing that this lens serves is to continue to feed ambiguity into whether or not trans and queer people exist like the only the only purpose it serves to be like well we don't know if this person was gay when they you know lived their entire lives with their male partner and they had a little ceremony in the garden with all their friends one day as like a marriage ceremony and they never courted any women um and when you know like isaac newton and um when you read this and then it has a little asterisk next to it that says, now this doesn't mean that he was gay. And you're like, was that necessary? <laughs> it mean... feels like a denial of reality at this point. I know this is like a side, side rant about my issue with the way that certain ty- certain areas of gender studies deal with this, but it's just like, I don't like that neutrality. I feel like we need mm-hmm. to re-examine how we approach that as academics. So that's my, that's my, um, my g- women in gender studies soapbox. I mean, I'm okay with putting an asterisk of we can't 100% confirm because they're dead. Sure. It is strongly indicated that. (laughs) It's more like, and you can tell, you can always tell, like, it's, you know, like when you have the burial, the burial remain or um, like tombs in Egypt is a great example. A lot of ancient Egypt's culture revolves around, you know, burial rites. It's a very important thing to them. And when the archaeologists find a body and they're like this body biologically doesn't match what we expected it to be because um, the tomb decoration says otherwise and then they go oh they must have messed up and you're like no that's not the <laughs> that's not the answer and you know it's not <laughs> the yeah. answer is the, the answer the answer is not the egyptians fucked up the answer is that that this person was trans <laughs> yeah and this happens a lot it reminds me of this um, tablet that was basically one woman sending a love spell to another woman, and the archaeologists who like trans like translated these tablets were like, "Oh, they um, the the scribe wrote the feminine pronoun twice. It had to been the making a mistake writing and didn't write the masculine pronoun." And as the author pointed out, it's like. Yeah, scribes can make mistakes, but why would they make the same mistake twice on, like, a tablet that has only, like, three lines? Yeah. 
There are... This also reminds me of like in high school. Did, did you ever like read any poems of Sappho in high school? And there's always some guy in the class where he's like, she's writing it from the perspective of the lover. And you're like, no. <laughs> no, I didn't have fun English classes where I read gay, sh- bisexual shit. I, we I, read gay stuff, but it was not presented to us as gay. Yeah, my teacher was like, my AP English teacher was like, here's some complex cultural literature. I'm not going to give you much context for it, so you're going to be constantly confused. Uh, high school. <laughs> anyway, um, you were saying, Corey? Well, I, I feel like in general, there is a very serious amount of straight washing that goes in when you look at any type of historical person. And it's aggressively straight washing Uh, just because most, again, most of the people who have been doing this research are aggressively straight and maybe they don't know they're aggressively straight, but they're aggressively straight. So any deviation from the norm to them is essentially, oh, well, it must've been a fuck up on their part. There's, it's just, there's no way to conceive. Yes. And this also ties into white supremacy because it always does. Mm-hmm. is that um, presenting history, especially like whitewashing queerness, is also related to scrubbing all of the little in- the, all the little imperfections off of the way that we perceive, you know, our heroes. Like one of the reasons why there's still big resistance to perceiving old Hollywood stars as queer when they were very obviously queer. And, you know, now that it's been 60 years, once in a while, a photo of one of them at an orgy shows up or something wild <laughs> like that, or you get a love letter that they wrote and it, it's obvious and you just have to like, and like it's in, there's a lot of them where it's just like utterly indisputable. And yet the line is always to still deny it. And also if you think about like, the way that we teach kids history, like I bet you that there are people who were taught about Harvey Milk, but weren't taught like that he was gay <laughs> or like why he was killed or like what his whole politics thing was. It was just like, and this was a tragedy. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was specifically your West Coast education, because I didn't I never heard about Harvey Milk in school. Like, yeah. I never learned about those kind of figures. I was just, it just occurred to me, like, this is because uh, I, I grew up in the Bay Area. So that that's the example that I went to is because it was part of our local history education. But even things like, you know, like queerness in in Native tribes or, or like mm-hmm. in, um, in, in Native cultures around the world have been systematically erased from any writings of the time. Like we know because these people still exist and they tell us, but when you look at white explorers and white settlers and white colonists records of these things, they explicitly either don't record them at all, or they file them under deviance. Mm-hmm. So they're like all of the, the, the effort to make history conform into a very specific centrist as they see it, a political ball of blandness, um, all of these things kind of come together. Definitely. And it also comes in these, like, like no homo, no any kind of thing that, like, expert, institutional experts do come into contact when they're actually talking to queer people and how they, um, like, you know, explain the queer person's words back to them. Yeah. Um, there's a, so I was reading yesterday uh paper on trans lesbians in the late 19th early 20th century and there was a great quote about the sexologist like um Magnus Magnus Hirschfeld who was like one of the big early trans allies and 
the writer um, said, it begins with an expert's idea of the concerns that trans life raises, and this understanding forms the question that are directed at subjects. The responses are then sorted through this original understanding and points of information that contradict or depart from the original understanding are either assimilated by interpretation or ignored. And I thought that really summed everything up. Boy, that's still very true, isn't it? <laughs> yes. That's actually, and even like relating to the trans man, trans mask thing, you will see, this is actually a good way to transition into our next sort of talking point, that um, in that order to gain... Intended? No. <laughs> but thank you. Uh, to transition into talking about um, the medical side of this, which is, you know, a little bit more modern, but there's always been ways... Um, that in order to access medical care, you often have to present in a way that the doctor expects you to present. So a simple example, and like, and again, like it's something that um, I don't remember if I touched on with trans mask and trans man invisibility, but the flip side of this coin is trans femme hypervisibility and trans misogyny, which is the idea that trans women are held to much, much higher standards of femininity than cis women are. And the inverse of that is also that trans men can sometimes be, it's context dependent, but to be held to, to stronger standards of masculinity than cis men. And this is often most in our faces when we are trying to get medical help or to either transition or even just medical help for anything like there's something called trans broken arm syndrome which is where you go to the er for a broken arm and then they say the hormones are making your bones brittle you should stop taking hormones <laughs> that's why your arm broke which is not true speaking of and even hormones. if it was that is not what broke your arm <laughs> speaking of hormones though there's some myths I think, especially around trans mask, trans men, persons of um, hormonal aggression. Yeah. Thanks, Elward. Yeah, we have Elward to thanks for so many things that are wrong in our communities. Anyways, I'm not going to go off on that. Otherwise, we're going to be in an entirely different episode. But would you kind of explain how you think that myth came about? Oh, well, I mean, that's not really hard that's just like the stupid thing from it's i'm trying to figure out how to classify this belief okay the the belief is that men are are uncontrollable idiot babies because testosterone is like an amazing powerful psychedelic drug that like removes their agency and completely destroys their ability to think critically and which is like you know, hilarious, obviously, is obviously false, or that, um, that testosterone, even, even like the idea that testosterone is necessarily what makes you aggressive, kind of, but that's like a 1950s understanding of, of hormone interaction, like the medical science has advanced past this point. But um, something that a lot of queer media for whatever reason, just keeps doing over and over again. Because the, the obviously the biggest example I can think of that most people will remember, um, if they're a lesbian or a queer woman, uh, is Max from the L Word, who basically tur 
turned into a horrible rage monster on what is when they see it in the show is actually still a pretty low dose of testosterone but the implication was that he was becoming this way because he was taking tea and there's even like that uh that conversation with jenny where she's like are you going to still be the nice person that i knew or this fucking monster which is like was a terrible thing to say um and then she Aimless, another show that had um, a trans mass character, who actually credit to them on this one, is played by a trans man actor. Um, that character will crawl down your throat and then back up your nose for making these, you know, smallest ignorant comment. And it's particularly frustrating because he knows he's speaking to people who are going to be ignorant of this sort of thing and reacts like this anyway. And I... I'm so tired of seeing this because every trans man I have met in real life with maybe like a couple of exceptions are mostly just like pretty chill people. Like they have sort of the presence of Ben Wyatt from Perks and Rec. They're not like really super aggressive people, even when they're really into working out. It's just not an aggressive demographic overall. And I feel like this is one of those things that's like this annoying little, little hanging participle leftover from like um second wave feminism in that era where they're like all things masculine or evil and it's just stuck around and i just think that it doesn't have a place in logical discourse in the modern queer community at all would you also um really quick would you also maybe think it would behoove people with patriarchy brain to maybe keep that myth going because the flip side, obviously, is if trans men are on T and they're not rage monsters, then you can't excuse the actions of cis <laughs> men. Um, there was a, another trans man on Twitter who had commented, he's like, man, when cis women, cis straight women discover trans men, it's over for cis men. <laughs> I mean, but, but that's the thing, though, isn't because, it? Well, because we have a we have a front row seat to the hazards of of misogyny and are still subjected to it by people who perceive us as usually broken women like there are just some things that we are aware of in a way that men, cis men are just not like like you ask the average cis man does he look in his back seat before he gets in the car i had to tell my friend ryan to do this do, do do cis men like when they're unlocking their car door do they like kind of tilt their back to it and look around make sure nobody's like sneaking up on your parking lot like they don't think about that sort of thing but trans men we know about that because we experienced it and we were warned about it also like and it's other little things like i will not get on an elevator if there is a woman alone in the elevator Mm -hmm. because i just know like that's just a fast way to make somebody uncomfortable because i hated when men did that to me the awareness is there yes um, and also, you know, the way that we raise kids we perceive to be little girls, uh, with some exceptions if you had good parents, but for the most part, if you had shitty boomer parents like I did, or, you know, just that's kind of how school was in the 90s, um, you are taught that you need to constantly be mindful of how other people perceive you and how you are making other people feel. And children we perceive to be boys are not really burdened with this. And children who are trans 
are made aware of this dichotomy by the fact that we do not really fit into this equation and are aware of it. So we don't really get so, like that's a, 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 I was like I'm not trying to set up like a trans people are socialized thing. Trans kids are socialized as trans because we don't fit into the model, but we do. We are more likely because we break the pattern to notice that it's there in the first place. Because a cis het man, unless something happens to him or someone he cares about, um, you know, jogs you know this little this little epiphany. Um, they don't just the just things that they just don't think about. They just never think about them unless they were made aware of them. And like, granted, you know, I'm in my 30s. And so um, the way that we teach kids is very different now. And I actually feel like things have really improved judging by the way that Gen Z interacts with each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have their problems too, but um, <laughs> the way that the way that the, the genders interact each other with Gen Z makes me think that at some point someone went, isn't this fucked up and started correcting it. Mm-hmm. Taylor, you were going to say something. Um, I was just going to be like, in regards to the whole T hormone aggression myth, I was just going to be like, boo, gender essentialism, biological essentialism. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, and then that's the other thing is like, and there is some, there is some truth to like that hormones have certain effects. Like testosterone will make you feel a little more energetic. I find that um, I can now just like get up and work out and do things. And I don't know if it's just the depression clearing. That's part of it. Um, But also I just, I do feel distinctly different. And you'll also hear that trans women say like, wow, I started taking estrogen and then I, I could cry and it was amazing. And, uh, and trans men will talk about going the other direction. It's like, yeah, I haven't cried in like a year and a half. And like, that kind of did happen to me. I still get choked up, but like things that would make like, like a sad movie that would, used to make me sob now i'm like oh that's sad <laughs> but like and these things aren't absolute either and even some of them can be dependent on things like the delivery method like for example trans women will talk about how if they have estrogen done in injections it's done as a cycle because um, you don't get injections every day mm-hmm. and then um basically it gives them a menstrual cycle like they get cramps and they bloat and they feel like crap <laughs> Despite not having, you know, the uterus and ovaries, but the hormones are there and your body is still like, oh, well, we're ovulating. Better make you feel like junk. And <laughs> and, and like and that's the that's like whenever whenever cis women are like trans women will never understand. And I'm like, that is provably incorrect. <laughs> there are some trans women who actually get like debilitating cramps and have to take medicine for it. Biology is absolutely wild. This is interesting to me as a cis woman because I have a mild case of PCOS, uh, which means I have had, yeah, high highest levels of testosterone in my systems at time, which I've only started to treat in the past two years because I take medications. My body properly processes sugar because my body not being able to process sugar properly affected my hormone production because bodies are dumb. And it yep. made my hormone cycles more like the stereotypical menstrual cycle. And I've noticed in recent months, I've been able to cry more easily. And I'm like, is that the therapy working? Or the my body's hormones getting back to what they're supposed to be? Or is it both? Yeah, it's, it's some of it is just that your brain is sitting in the hormone cocktail that it expects to be sitting in. Um, I don't like... 
a lot of trans people have like really extreme body dysphoria. I don't necessarily have that. I feel like for me, it was more that my brain was constantly aware that something was wrong. And especially when I, whenever I would get a menstrual cycle, it would be like something is really wrong because that's the wrong set of hormones. And this also happens to cis people. So fixing that hormone imbalance, a lot of people overall are just like, well, I feel a wider range of emotions and, you know, I feel more like myself and like, uh, oh, that's the other thing is like, I feel like people don't know that is a lot of cis people are prescribed hormones. Like this is very common. Like cis women being prescribed Spiro is very common for various things or progesterone. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because... I remember the first time I got like a real menstrual cramp and it was when I was an adult and I was like, it Ooh. felt so affirming because I was like, oh my God, I'm experiencing what most women experience. Yeah. And that's the thing is trans women will talk about that all the time as, as, a, as a being like an affirming experience. It's like, oh, wow, this is like a thing that all women experience. And then being like, this sucks. I know. It's so funny. <laughs> when I went to California for my friend's wedding, I became friends with a woman who had recently started her transition. And so like we had this weird bonding experience because like I didn't have a loving, nurturing mother who guided me into womanhood no close female friends so I'm like I'm figuring this out now as an adult with finally with close female friends and female role models and she was kind of on a similar path because we she didn't have a a great mother and of course as a trans woman transitioning transitioning as an adult and so like there's this interesting connection certain trans women and certain cis women can have due to how we approach coming into womanhood because it's such a we have we need role models in life. That's the big thing. You I was to- going to say, doesn't this perfectly illustrate how gender is a social construct that the validation really does cross across all women, regardless of biological construction, because the things that we associate with womanhood sort of transcend just the biological function. And they have to. That's, otherwise, it wouldn't mean anything. And I mean, that point of like how socially constructed, constructed, I can speak, (laughs) how socially constructed gender norms or gender roles really are. And I mean, we see this in what I think some people would consider more mundane terms of like um, tomboys, like women who like more traditionally, quote unquote, masculine things or men who like more traditionally, quote unquote, feminine things. And it doesn't mean that you're necessarily one thing or another it's just we have such a strict gender binary that's been developed of this is this and this is this when it doesn't really fit at all it's also you know the it's androgyny in children is always tolerated way more in girls than it is in boys Mm -hmm. like girls are allowed to play at being a boy but maybe things are different now but you know in the 90s um boys were not allowed to play at being girls and even like i remember um in my little like base camp of friends this is when i was like five or six years old so it was there was three other girls there was me who looked like a boy and then there was dominic who actually was a boy although looking back on it i i actually don't think he was a boy um but it's sort of funny what do you think about it but um Dominic being part of our friend group was always kind of a grading issue for the parents and they would often have a big issue with him being at the birthday parties and stuff as if like the presence of a single male was by the way who was a very feminine boy 
was going to be like some kind of problem. Right. But they tolerated me being extremely masculine or they they were neutral, neutral to it. They didn't start pushing against it until I went through puberty. Right. Um, One other thing I wanted to talk about is we hear a lot about trans women talking about getting access to medical care or hormones, but we don't really talk about what it's like for trans men or trans mask persons. Oh, here's another, um, another example of cis people messing things up for trans people. Okay. So, uh, testosterone is a scheduled drug. What scheduled means is there is a schedule, a list of drugs that are considered too dangerous for general sale because usually they're potential for sale on the black market. So things that fit into this category are usually things like your obvious opiates, um, so your morphines, oxycontin, that sort of thing, benzos because they're very dangerous, um, stimulants like Adderall, and then you have synthetic testosterone. And you're like, is it really that dangerous? The answer is no. But the reason why it's scheduled is because cis men use it for doping for sports. It doesn't actually work for that, but Mm -hmm. they use it anyway. And because of this, um, I have to show my driver's license and I have to sign a little waiver. And there are extra security. Oh, also, um, I don't know if you can buy it on your own under 18. I think you might need uh, a parent's permission. So that's another. There, another thing that um, that estrogen probably does that doesn't have as a non-scheduled educa- medication, but um, also if the medications ever do become illegal, trans men are at a much higher risk for stockpiling medications because stockpiling a scheduled drug is a felony. Whereas if someone has like six bottles of a stro- the the synthetic estrogen, it's like well, a well like they're they're allowed to do that. As long right. as they aren't selling. I mean, they probably, I mean, you know, obviously, you know how things are. Someone could be charged with intent to distribute for something like that. But at least it's intent to distribute something that is, like, on the prescription level of, like, an extra strength Claritin and not, like, a scheduled drug where you will do real prison time for being ac- being convicted of selling it. Right. It's up there with like anabolic steroids in terms of seriousness. And, you know, this is an issue. Like if you if you lose a prescription for a scheduled drug, for example, you can't get it replaced most of the time. So you have to just wait it out if your if your medication gets stolen or something. So this is an accessibility issue. It's just something where it's like you wouldn't have to think about this unless you ever had to actually purchase testosterone, because that's certainly how I learned about it. Right. And if you're in the middle of transitioning and then suddenly for whatever reason, I don't know if there's an accident with a toilet and something gets flushed, you know, whatever reason you don't have those hormones anymore. <laughs> like you yeah. have that entire month where you're, it's, it's, it's kind of essentially put on pause. Like you can't, I should, I should clarify. Um, if you're getting injections, you can go to like a planned parenthood and have them do that for you. The if you lose it, you're screwed option is more if you have the gel or the androderm pads, which side note, without insurance, the subdermal pads cost $1,600 for three months. Yeah. Basically, bless Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Planned Parenthood is an amazing resource and pretty much every trans person I know, including myself, has used them for something. I mean, we all know I would never, even if my life depended on it, be able to give myself a shot. So, <laughs> it's, so that's it's the other nice thing is that there, like, you have resources. I know, that, I know I will. 
I'll switch over to shots because they're that's just they're more effective. Oh, that's another another little small fun chemistry thing is that um, synthetic estrogen and the feminizing hormones can be taken in pill form, but testosterone cannot because it doesn't get absorbed right. It'll give you blood clots and kill you. So for testosterone, oh. it has to be injected or it has to be absorbed through your skin. And those are your options. Didn't so like, and I know that. I yeah, but, but it was like cool. It's like a cool little sciencey thing. Uh, but there. There are, you know, like if you want to do patches for estrogen, you can do that too. Uh, mm-hmm. I personally like them. They're just expensive. And, um, you know, I know that I'll switch to injections because it's more effective. It's just kind of how the chemistry works. But um, the only reason I didn't do it yet is because I can't give my, myself a shot. And going to an injection clinic means I have to go in person somewhere. So once that's safe to do again, I'll do that. But, you know, for now, I got to use the patches. Right. Because a lot of people probably can't just for not even phobia reasons just can't give themselves a shot there there's a well, certain if amount of your hands are too shaky yeah like there's a lot it, like there's a lot of things that you know you are you could poke it into a vein if you really get unlucky i mean you, you don't inject them usually into spots where that's a major problem but like you know something could go wrong <laughs> that's yeah. the reason why if you do injections usually they ask you like hey you know it's highly recommended you live with somebody who can help you with this and this is true of any um, injection medication like if you do insulin or stuff they'll be like do you have a partner to ha- or uh, a housemate who can help you because mm-hmm. it's just easier to have somebody else do it because their hands will be steadier and that sort of thing right well I mean it's good to know though that Planned Parenthood like Taylor said is you know available if you live near one yes obviously problems arise if you do not live near one <laughs> yeah, but again that's... it goes back to general access yeah, that's the other thing is that there's a lot of scary stuff in the news cycle, which I just do not pay attention to because I'm I've kind of reached a point where I'm of the opinion that I will not get upset about things that I don't really have any control over. Like, I don't have control over, you know, what legislator does. I live in California and I feel a little safe because of that. But who knows what's going to happen in five years? So you got to just kind of not let that kind of stuff get you down <laughs> focus on what you can control i think yes it's that um, from frozen 2 olaf we call this game controlling what we can when things yes. feel out of control <laughs> exactly which is good news i mean good news uh good advice yeah i think just in general not just for this episode but i think for a wide variety of things that have been happening of i think it's really easy to start doom scrolling which is not healthy the closing note I have on this, especially since this is, I, I suppose, intended for a cis audience, is that, because this is just sort of like a generalized talk, but it is kind of, you don't have to like read all the bad news, but it is important to know what the issues are so mm-hmm. you know how to vote correctly. Because the one time that your input actually does start to matter is when we're talking votes and when we're talking big protests. And what the hope is, is that we do things with the votes and we don't have to go to the protest stage. Right. So the educate best thing that yourself. you can do to get through this, yes, educate yourself on the issues and tell other people about the issues. Because just like with gay marriage, as Corey and I can attest as being olds who remember this, uh, talking about it actually does slowly change the public opinion. And it takes time, and but you have to do the work. You have to actively talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, Eli, I do want to thank you for coming back to do this episode. Um, You're welcome. And it's just nice to hear from you again. Yes. 
we do have a few other episodes uh, in this series as well. We will be talking to a, a, a gender queer slash non-binary. This this is going to be the best episode for me because I am just so nebulous in and around this topic as well. I, I, I obviously know more about certain trans issues than I do the entire discussion about gender queer non-binary. So for me, that's going to be a fun episode to do just for... M- you know, learning. We all have things to learn. Like, ex- that's the other thing is that with like the non-binary and gen- gender queer spectrum, that's something you want to learn from an expert mm-hmm. <laughs> because a lot of people will talk out their butts about that. So that's yeah, and you want to talk to an actual person with that identity because I think it's very easy online, especially for people to talk out their butts. Um, yeah, and we also have you know some more community building type of things um some relationship advice maybe hopefully um that i promise it won't turn into an episode of me ranting about unhealthy ship fixation dynamics within the sapphic community i promise i mean it might it probably will kind of done with fandom um the like the one the one closing thought on that is um i'm i don't want queer people to say to each other it's not my job to educate you Mm mm-hmm so that was why I agreed to do this it's because I don't feel like this is a helpful attitude to have. And I'm glad that you are collecting interviewees for a series like this. Well, and the flip side is there's a shit metric fuck ton of misinformation on Google that I really don't want people who would otherwise just innocently want to know information find out. <laughs> And Tumblr and Twitter are not forums from which to learn about complex social issues or political stances because they are not really designed for that. They're designed to make you fight with your friends about Batman. Exactly. And that's really what you should use Twitter for, to fight with your friends about <laughs> Batman and not, not you know, make yourself sad. <laughs> well, thank you again for joining us. Um, we obviously have more episodes in the pipeline this year that we're super excited about. Um, Taylor has been doing a fantastic job in helping me research a lot of these. So thank you again, Taylor. You're welcome. Glad to be able to do my part. And we also have more shows on the Fundamentals Network. And those are, because Taylor so nicely wrote them out for me, all Bark, No Dice, Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics, Cannon Fodder, Fae Forge Academy, which is our weekly TTRPG on Fridays, um, Ladies First, obviously, Sartorial Splendor, that's Haram. You can still check out archived episodes of The Fundamentalist and Unabashed Book Snobbery, and don't forget to check out Right to Survive podcast. We hope you all are staying safe. Until next time, have a good one. Goodbye and good night. Bye.